0: Welcome to Voices of Australia, a podcast where we explore different perspectives on how to build a cohesive society. Australia is poised at what Dr James O'Donnell from ANU calls a critical juncture. In an ever-shifting global context, we find ourselves navigating rapid technological advances, changing demographics and the pressing mandate of environmental action. While many might perceive these macro challenges as the domain of policymakers in distant corridors of power, the reality is that their actions echo profoundly within our communities, homes, schools, and workplaces. They influence every facet of life in Australia. So, what does the roadmap look like for our nation? What key policy decisions will define our trajectory in the next decade? How do we build bridges between the present challenges and the vision of an Australia that is prosperous, inclusive and sustainable? In today's episode, we'll delve deep into these critical questions guided by the insights and expertise of our distinguished guest, Danielle Wood. Danielle Wood is the CEO of the Grattan Institute, a preeminent Australian policy think tank. Her expertise encompasses a range of pivotal areas from economic reforms, budgets and tax adjustments, to women's workforce engagement and generational inequality. Previously holding prominent positions at the ACCC and the Productivity Commission, Danielle is also a trailblazer for women in economics, co-founding the Women in Economics Network. She serves in significant advisory roles within the Australian Government and is an Honorary Fellow of the Economic Society of Australia. Welcome, Danielle. Danielle.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Anthea, delighted
0: to be here. It's an absolute pleasure on our behalf. We're um, really excited to spend some time with you and hear a little bit more about how you think Australia is going to progress over the next decade or so. But with your vast experience in economic policy, how do you envisage Australia's strategy should be responding to the, um, the pressing global challenges of both climate change and technological evolution? A nice big question to start with. Uh,
1: It certainly is a a big question. I mean, I think um, if we're thinking about climate change, you know, that is going to be, or it's going to require a fundamental transformation of our economy over the next 25 or so years. So uh, we've said at a a federal level, as as well as actually every state um, have committed to a target of net zero by 2050. Um, my uh, colleagues here at at Grattan in our energy and climate program call it an industrial revolution with a deadline Uh, because when you think of what is involved in that transition, uh, it is a fundamental reshaping of our electricity network Mm -hmm. um, to to get a very, very high penetration of renewables. That means a huge amount of um, building renewable power and connecting it into the grid. Uh, It means a transformation of our transport networks uh, and the way we move around, uh, the way we build our cities and live in our cities. It's a transformation of our agricultural processes. Um, So, you know, every part of the economy is going to be touched by this uh, and it's happening and it needs to happen quickly. Um, So it is a a huge shift and I think people are only just really now starting to get a handle on, on how big... That change will be. Um, That is not to um, to say that it is all bad or scary. Of course, there are transition (laughs) issues that that have to be managed and we know there are, for example, certain regions and communities um, where carbon intensive jobs and things like the coal industry are very concentrated, so we need to think about the transition for those areas. Uh, But there's also lots of opportunities in this. Um, We are a country with incredible renewable resources that opens up um, things like possibility of green manufacturing, using hydrogen. Uh, we have uh, big reserves of some of the key critical minerals and rare earths that are going to be needed uh, to build all the solar power panels and the batteries and uh, the things that needed for this transition. So, there, you know, it will shape our economy, it will change things, but it comes with a lot of economic opportunities for Australia as well. Um, so that's the climate piece. I think you're very right to, to raise... Uh, digital and technology, Uh, it does certainly feel like we are on the cusp of another sort of economy-changing wave of innovation um, with AI and data analytics. Um, Interestingly, you know, at the moment, Australia is lagging if we compare uh, on – lead tables of OECD countries, uh, we tend to be slower adopters of, of some of those technologies. Uh, so I think, you know, if we want to be, you know, at the forefront growing our economy uh, and productivity, we need to think about how it is we adopt those technologies and filter them through the economy. Uh, and I think, you know, I, I come from a world where I think a lot about government policy. So um, governments do play a role. They play an enabling a role in terms of making sure we have the skills that we need in our economy, which is the combination of um, training as well as um, having a well-functioning skilled migration program. Uh, they play a role through things like cyber security and making sure that companies are able to to invest safely in these areas. Uh, and they play a role as leaders as well. I mean, governments are big providers of services things like health and education uh, can be areas where these technologies really transform how we do things and governments can play a leadership role in that. So, I, again, I think there are lots of opportunities for us, uh, but it does require us, you know, really being on the front foot.
0: So, Danielle, we haven't always been slow in the uptake. I mean, we are one of the... the, the um, have been very active uh, uptakers in in uh, solar panels on houses, we were very early adopters of mobile phones. Um, Why why do you think there are some areas where we're slower than others?
1: Well, it's interesting. So those areas that you raise, Anthea, are areas where the consumer is deciding to to pick up the technology. And and you're right, you know, we are regarded as as, um, often quite early adopters of these new consumer technologies. Um, Where we have tended to be slower is in business adoption uh, and, you know, there's some interesting data on this. Um, you know, Australia tends to sit, you know, what, behind what I would call the sort of best practice frontier when it mm-hmm. comes to management skills. Um, so we we tend to be sort of less good on standard matri- metrics of management than places like the United States. Uh, and when you break that down, actually, the area where we fall most short is in terms of digital. So mm-hmm. Australian managers report feeling less confident in identifying the technologies that will make a difference to their business uh, and then um, less confident in rolling it out and, and deploying those. And, and we all know that, you know, major IT transformation is very hard uh, and it, it's, yeah. it's something that, you know, we, we don't seem to have the kind of confidence and expertise in. Um, so, you know, I think that is something we need to think about given how t- important these technologies are going to be just to doing business in every area of our economy going forward.
0: It is a really interesting area because, I mean, you just have to look at banking uh, to understand the legacy issues to do with technology that just um, make everything that much more difficult. But given we have a relatively unique position in the global world, the global arena, if you like, around all sorts of different things, and we probably have... Quite a big voice in some areas, and and maybe not in others. Maybe that's an acknowledgement of where we are strong and and not so strong. But how do you think we should be positioning ourselves, or Australia should be positioning itself in the future within the global context? Look,
1: I think I mean we've we've always been, or for a long time, we've been a sort of middle-sized economy and a, and a middle-sized power. Uh, and, look, I think, um, you know, realistically that's will continue to to be the case. Um, we do have scope to, to, to provide leadership in some areas. Um, you know, we have – we're pretty unique geographically. I think, you know, being a sort of Western industrialised economy adjacent to Asia, um, you know, we have advantages both in terms of our sort of economic as well as our cultural ties with the region. So I think that does give us um, some – leadership in in some of the issues particularly as they play out um in in asia and in our backyard so i think uh it's probably a matter of you know picking the ones that make sense for us as a nation but recognizing of course um you know in in terms of relative size where we we are um uh not a a major power and and nor are we going to be um so it's using our influence in a, a strategic way
0: Um, I'd be interested to know where you think those particular strengths are. Um, I think one of the things that has been sort of an interesting discussion has been about what is Australia's vision for its future and where are the the real industries where we can grow and develop those real strengths. Have you got a view about where you think those might be? What are the the areas where Australia should really try to maximise and capitalise that influence it can have?
1: Um, So, look, in terms of sectors of the economy, I mean, I think the – I touched on it when I was talking about the green transition. I think this is really uh, an interesting area. Uh, It is an area where, um, you know, technology is evolving very rapidly, but as I said, you know, we do have um, huge (laughs) amounts of renewable resources, lots of land, (laughs) Uh, and, you know, when you look at opportunities in things like hydrogen – potentially it does open up um, new sectors for us to be competitive where we haven't been competitive in the past. So if you think of something like steel manufacturing, I think is a nice example. You know, Historically, we've sent the iron ore overseas. We've sent the coal to generate the power overseas. We've done some of it here, but not, not on a big scale. Um, when you start talking about green energy and hydrogen, it's much more expensive to export the energy. Um, so you potentially turn the economics of um that industry on its head. And it may be now that it becomes economic to produce at scale in Australia and export elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's really interesting. Um, I think there's other areas where historically we've had comparative advantage and we will continue to. Um, agriculture is a good example and we have you know really, really efficient um, agricultural systems and, and we're really important in um, sending those products out into the world. Uh, in the services economy, higher education, I think, is a great example. You know, we've built up um, a very successful industry that attracts students from around the globe and particularly in our own neighbourhood um, that has been a major export industry for Australia and I think, um, you know, will continue to be. So uh, when I look forward, I think it's a combination of continuing to do the things we have done well, well, as well as looking for for new opportunities as the economy evolves.
0: Can can I ask you a question sort of tangential to this, but related? Uh, in the space of agriculture, some of the experiences and knowledge that come from other communities elsewhere in the world, um, I think of African communities and um, those, those areas have developed agricultural techniques that potentially have an opportunity to inform how we do agriculture here. Do you think we're um good at actually learning from other cultures and bringing that into the way we do things here or do you think we're more focused on that technological advances that um that we keep expecting to have happen
1: oh that's an interesting question um <laughs> look i suspect a lot of the focus has been on on technology and certainly um you know agriculture is a sector that has you know transformed mm-hmm. because of technology uh, my guess is that we're not as good at um, the learning and, you know, like one, the more obvious place you might think is um, learning from uh, our Indigenous people yes. that you know, we're here for um, <laughs> tens of thousands of years um, pretty successfully uh, managing the land and um, feeding themselves. Uh, I, I think that is growing, um, our willingness to, to to learn from different cultural practices and we talk about that more in terms of land management now. Um, you know whether that extends to um, learning from from overseas. I, I don't I don't know. but you know I, I think um you know the countries that are successful, when the industries and sectors are successful um should have an open mind and, and want to pick out best practice from elsewhere. And um you know I think that's something we we actually certainly in the policy world, we do a lot of as Australians, we're often you know looking around for for what works um in different parts of the world. Uh, and you know, so I think the the more of that we do, the better.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's very true. I'm I'm curious though that we often have little um, hubs of uh, great advancements occurring, whether it's sort of niche manufacturing or in in even in some agricultural components of um, areas where we do things differently and make, um, you know, become internationally known for that that particular technique or. Um, Do you think that the population is more progressive than policy and is that always the case? Is policy always a bit slow uh, in regard to catching up with the broader population's views or am I misunderstanding the Australian population's uh, ability to uh, integrate and be ambitious around what we might be able to achieve?
1: Uh, Look, I I think as a general rule, you're right to say that policy tends to lag community. Um, And I I think that's probably true in social issues as well as um, economic issues that that you're talking about. Um, There is um, an inherent risk aversion within government. Um, And, and, you know, that's sort of an understandable risk aversion. Uh, If you just do the same thing over and over again, uh, even if it doesn't work, you, you probably don't get in that much trouble because you're just doing the same thing. <laughs> um, whereas if you do, if you try something new and it goes wrong, um, you know everyone's going to point the finger at you and say, "Why were you trying that silly thing?" So yeah. uh, it does um, push policymakers, um, and this is true of politicians as well as public servants, uh, into a world where they are probably more uh, risk averse. on average than than we would hope they would be and and probably than the the community is, as you're pointing to.
0: So you you mentioned climate change and technology. Do you think they're the main levers that policies need to start to um, view as being paramount to uh, Australia's prosperity and cohesion going forward? Are they the main two areas that um, we need to really focus the policies on going forward? Uh, I
1: think they're two critical ones. I mean, I would probably add a a third, which I think also brings in both um, prosperity and cohesion, which is education, Mm -hmm. Um, because I think, you know, in a world which is, you know, pretty much a sort of mainly services, economy, uh, human capital is absolutely (laughs) critical. Uh, And there's a, you know, lovely quote from Bill Gates says, you know, the best leading indicator of where a country will be in 20 years' time is its education system. Yeah. So the way in which we, you know, invest in those future generations, that's going to be um, a critical driver of our prosperity and innovation uh, going forward. But also, you know, it is also critical for social cohesion, I think, because it's about, um, you know, dampening economic differences making sure that everyone has equal opportunity regardless of um you know which family they were born into or which part of the country they were born into um so i'm i'm a very big believer in education and an education system that's working well um You know, I know this is not a podcast on education (laughs) policy, so I I won't go into detail, but there's, you know, there's many things I think that we could be doing better. It's not just about spending more money, but we could be doing better in our school education system as well as in our skills and and higher education systems. Um, So I think, you know, really investing in that as an area of policy would be the, the third one that I would add into that mix.
0: I, I couldn't agree with you more and I, I think we might return to that as we as we go oh, along. Great. Uh, but trust in government has really been quite a consistent thread uh, throughout this series. Uh, considering your involvement with so many initiatives like the Women's Economic Quality Task Force, how, how do you think we can strengthen public trust in our institutions? look it's it's a wonderful
1: question and this is you know certainly something that has occupied some of my mind while I've I've been in the policy world because you know trust matters for oh. for getting done um you know it matters <laughs> for a whole lot of reasons but uh if if you don't have trust in government it's harder for government to to do these sorts mm-hmm. uh, of policy reforms, because they don't have the the sort of the social license or the the capital to do that. Um, so, you know, I think it's worth, and you may have discussed this on previous podcasts. Um, just just noting the sort of trajectory that we had this um, decline in trust from, and this is you know beautifully picked up in the the social cohesion index. From about 2009 Mm -hmm. onwards, we had sort of this decade of decline in trust, which all of us were worried about. We saw mirrored internationally as well, at least across um, Western nations. We were seeing the the sort of same decline, uh, jumped up again during COVID when everyone was, you know, really looking to government for answers, and then seems to be moderating again. But I, I think there is no single answer to why it declined, and therefore what we can do about it. Um, I think there's some, you know, some uniquely Australian aspects. Um, we changed a lot of prime ministers during that period. And I think people were pretty shocked by, you know, the fact that they went to bed one night and they woke up with a different prime minister, you know, not yeah. who I voted for. Um, you know, and, and fair enough, it, it kind of looked like we had a political class that was interested in themselves and, and not thinking about the country. Yeah. Um, I think we have a tendency for politicians to um, over-promise and under-deliver on policy. So there are a lot of very tricky areas. I mean, housing affordability is one very much in the focus now, but we have been talking about it for a long time. Um, you know, when people say they're going to fix that problem, you create this expectation um, that, it, that it is very hard to deliver on, and I think um, that is... is is ultimately damaging to people's trust. Um, And then you've got a kind of whole set of things around the institutions themselves and and how they function. So we've done a lot of work, for example, on the um, power of vested interests and the way in which interests can use donations and lobbying and public campaigns to try and skew the public debate Uh, and they get a sort of disproportionate say in in policy outcomes. Um, You've got issues around... Um, the way governments themselves act, you know, abusive entitlements, jobs for mates, um, a whole lot of thing that goes to self-interest. So I think um, people in those systems um, actually taking on integrity is a central component of the role, um, but also setting up the system so it is harder for those abuses to occur because I think all of that just chips away at public faith. Um, And I really, you know, I just, I feel so upset when I see another one of these scandals. I just want to bang my head against the wall because I know that there's just a whole lot of people in the public out there saying, oh, you know, they're all the same. Why shouldn't we listen to them? And I understand that reaction from the public. I mean, I feel <laughs> the same frustration, but if we switch off and we say they're all the same and, you know, we don't have faith in our institutions, um, then it, then it's very hard to, to, to get change. So, yeah. um, you know, cleaning up uh, politics and political decision-making I think could um, go a long way to, Slowly rebuilding that trust.
0: Oh, absolutely, and and I think, <laughs> I think whatever uh, we sh- we can't we should not forget that in actual fact we are a highly cohesive society, and in general we really do trust those institutions within, you know, that are part of the functioning of Australian uh, democracy and and how we operate. But at the same time, you're absolutely right. The coverage of the media and social media and the impact that that can have is uh, is not to be underestimated. Um, exactly. And we want them to be better. Um, so, you know, we are very
1: lucky that we don't have, I think, you know, kind of deep corruption. Uh, and, you know, so even this kind of grey corruption, we want to stamp out because we can. we can be even better.
0: Absolutely. I think we all desperately hope and want that to be the case, for them to be as good as they can be. Um, your advocacy on women's workforce participation and generational inequality has been really notable. How do you see those areas influencing Australia's future in, in as much as do you see that we're actually making progress around um, women's workforce participation? And do you think we're making, uh, do you think we have a full enough understanding about that intergenerational inequality?
1: Uh, so, look, on women's workforce participation, I actually do think we're making progress. Um, and, you know, we come out of COVID with the highest rate of women's workforce participation on record, um, you know, incredibly strong participation. Um, we uh, still have very high rates of part-time work amongst women by international standards and a big gap in, in that um, full-time participation between men and women. So I, I think, you know, there is scope to go, but I think increasingly we recognise this as both um, economic opportunity. Uh, We have incredibly highly trained women in this country, um, and so freeing, at least giving them the choice and opportunity to work more if they would want to. Um, So this is things like um, supporting more affordable childcare Mm. so that women have the choice to to go back to work. I think that's now increasingly recognised as a really important economic driver. Um, as well as a driver of, um, you know, better economic outcomes for those women as individuals. Um, So I I think that conversation is changing. We've seen some movement on childcare. The government is promising to do more. Um, They are, you know, I was a member of the Women's Equality Task Force because you said, um, you know, lots of thinking um, more broadly about uh, how do we... uh, unlock this potential, this incredible resource that we have sitting there um, so that that women are able to make that choice. So I've been really heartened by the direction of that policy conversation, to to be honest, Anthea,
0: Yeah, Um,
1: that's great. On intergenerational inequality, I'm going to be a a little less optimistic. (laughs) Um, I think that's an area where we have struggled to get progress. So, you know, my concern really is that we – are setting up a generation to be less well off than the one before and you know i think we have this expectation and and a great expectation of generation on generation progress in living standards i think we should want to leave the country a better place for those that come after us and i think there's a number of fronts in which we haven't been doing that um the most well climate is is a very a very big and important one and we we've already touched on that. So yeah. I won't go into that, but it is, it's a massive transfer between <laughs> generations. Um, housing is another really important one. Um, and increasingly uh, it is extremely difficult for a young person on even a middle income to to get into the housing market. Um, and, you know, that concerns me. And now we're seeing in- big increases in rent as well. So, mm-hmm. Um, younger people are spending more and more of their budget um, on simply on a place to to live, yeah. um, and that then curtails their their opportunity to um, do other things, to take risks, to live close to jobs. Um, so all of those those things I think are hurting the living standards, at least on average, of younger Australians today. Um, and then we do have this kind of slow burn issue around population ageing that you touched on in your introduction. Um, which has a big impact on um, government's fiscal position and therefore things like um, how much tax and, and how many services we might expect in the future. Um, so, you know, as as the population ages, we're going to have fewer people of working age who tend to be net contributors to the budget on average, um, for every person over 65 who tend to be net drawers on average. Um, so that just makes um, government budgets hardest to Spain, We're going to spend a lot more on things like age pension and age care. And I think no one um, begrudges that. You know, we, we all want our older Australians to have a, a good standard of living in retirement, but we haven't planned. And, and particularly in our tax system, um, we don't have the revenue base to support that at the moment. And as I said, that's a slow burn issue, but we've been talking about it for a long time and we haven't I think, yet done the the proper preparatory work. If we don't, we just shift that burden onto the next generation to come.
0: Yeah, I think, um, well, one of the areas that sort of relates to that, um, to what you just comments then, which is really to do with whether or not economic growth can actually ensure that the benefits are spread across the communities. Um, because often it's quite distorted and certainly from our perspective where we work a lot with the transition of migrants into Australian society, that opportunity that they come here for around being able to aspire to the type of living that they want to have and the type of um, opportunities for their families around education but also around housing and growth, that, that's often quite distorted. Um, there's, there's a phrase I've heard which is, are we really setting them up for success? Uh, when they choose to come here to Australia, do you have a view about how that economic growth can be balanced with actually creating uh, some type of of balance across all the part, all the aspects of our communities?
1: Uh, look, it's it's an incredibly challenging issue. So I think there's um, you know there's a lot of debates um, about the sort of balance of growth and the way we balance growth with with equity. Um, and I think there's sort of two big components to that. Um, one is about, you know, what we are doing for for those um, that might be living in po- poverty or very low income people, the sort of social safety net to make sure that people, um, you know, don't, uh, end up in a precarious position so that you know those are debates about how much we should be investing in things like new start and, and and rent assistance uh, and i think there's very fair arguments that we don't do enough at the moment um, related to that there's arguments about the sort of health and education systems and making sure that they're delivering a standard which is helping bring people up and, and not track trapping people in cycles of disadvantage uh, and there's also arguments around the kind of broader macroeconomic policy settings, um, what should we, you know, what priority should we put on strong labor markets and, and full employment? Um, because that's, that's really critical for those things. Yeah. Um, then there's a sort of a separate set of arguments, which I think, um, brings in some of the things that you were talking about, about, um, how do we enable, um, you know, how do we support a thriving middle class, mm-hmm. um, you know we haven't seen the same hollowing out of the middle class in the way we have seen in places like the US but i think it's still really important to, to you know think about um how do we unleash this potential uh, and make sure that people are kind of um getting the best of their economic Opportunities. Yeah. Um, so there, you are talking about your kind of skill system, your higher education system. You're talking about things like childcare to support workforce participation, housing, as you've pointed out. um You know, those are all areas where policy can be better, and we've got you know a lot to say about the specifics of of what that looks like. But you know, I think we we can do better on a lot of these, and you know, frankly, it, doing that is in the long term interests of our yeah. country. Nobody wants to see a hollowed out. Middle class, or a country that doesn't take advantage of the the fullest potential of its citizens, uh,
0: absolutely, or or taking away that um, aspiration of wanting and and being able to realise aspirations about what you can actually achieve when you exactly. live in Australia. Um, th- just bringing a couple of the pieces together that we talked about earlier, the pace of technological changes and slowing down, and um, and we're, I'm just wondering, how do you think we can use uh, that that pace of change uh, to actually be a cohesive force in Australia? How do we foster people's both understanding of the risks, but also taking advantage of the opportunities? And and as you mentioned before, is there a role for education in helping to, under, to, to balance that understanding of risk and opportunity where it comes to technological change?
1: Uh, absolutely. And I think... Um... As I said before, you know we we are lagging, and that says to me there is a big opportunity um, for us to understand how to employ and utilize these technologies to, you know, do better in um, yes, in the production of goods, but also in the way we deliver education, in the way we tr- you know can um, transform our health system. Um, you know, I think there's massive opportunities there in technology, and but to to get there we need the people that understand uh how these technologies work and how to deploy them and feel feel confident having these conversations so i think that's a, a huge uh challenge and, and role for our education system going forward um i think the cohesion aspect comes because um you know you create a lot of well-paid great jobs frankly you know which is a, a very um, good thing for for the economy but also for for social cohesion uh, and potentially you you know you you broaden um opportunities to to work with with different groups um you know these these can be quite diverse sectors um and I think that's a, another positive thing
0: one, one of the things that we have heard uh is that many uh people who arrive here from other countries often have a um a a set of views about what it takes to be successful that is to be a doctor or a lawyer Um, but they're not necessarily familiar with all these new types of professions and roles and opportunities what what would you say to a, a parent that wasn't familiar with all of that about what the opportunity actually is in the future that that it may well be in areas that none of us have even conceived of yet uh, where do we, um, how do we describe the future to new people that have just arrived?
1: Well, I, I have to say this is a this is a classic Anthea and it's not just newly arrived migrants. If you survey the whole set of fifteen year olds in this country and you ask them what they're <laughs> going to be when they grow up, um, the vast majority will say just ten professions, uh, and that ah. will include doctor and lawyer and firefighter and you know the ones that you see in in children's books when you <laughs> when you are young. Um, so we don't. Um, I, I, you know, and if we actually looked at what share of total jobs they are, that would be a tiny fraction. Um, you know, there are so many ways to succeed and thrive in our economy uh, and a whole lot of jobs that none of us have ever heard of that are that are making a difference. So I think it's keeping an open mind, um, focusing, um, you don't necessarily have to do a very vocational degree, like I do a law degree and I'm going to become a lawyer, um, just building a skill set
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and so when we when we see the skills that are in demand uh, economists like boring titles so they call them non-routine cognitive skills but basically it is things like um, collaboration communication um you know being able to apply um, higher level thinking and, and expertise to problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so building out those skills through education, um, you might take a particular lens and do that um, through technology. Um, but there are so many opportunities uh, out there. <laughs> Businesses are kind of crying out for um, you know, savvy individuals with a kind of can-do attitude that can can do this. So uh, my advice is really just um, don't think narrowly. Don't necessarily think a- along a straight vocational line. Um, there are already a huge diversity of jobs out there, and that diversity is only going to grow.
0: Thank you that very much, Danielle. I've got I've got just a couple more questions. One one is, what's the key? What message would you give to policymakers when they're thinking about the future? What's What's the sort of thing they should be thinking of when they start to plan? Uh, what might be the types of things they want to see in Australia in the next five or ten years?
1: Uh, look, I think to be bold, and we talked about risk aversion before. I think Um, Some of these things are foreseeable. Um, You know, we can see the tech revolution happening. We can see that we need to make progress on climate. Um, I I have a degree of frustration that we set up another task force and do another (laughs) strategy. I think let's just get on with it. A lot of this stuff we know um, what needs to happen. So let's um, push on. And I think um, uh, having faith in Australians to go along on that journey, I think we often underestimate um, the capacity of... All Australians to kind of listen to the reasons for change and, and embrace that change if if people are making a good case for it.
0: I, I think making a good case is such an important component. You have to be able to tell the story. Of, Indeed, of it but matters. if you
1: do, you can you can actually see that people will, come, will come. come along, and you can you can chart this through case studies of different policies, explain it, go through it. Um, that communication piece really matters, but you can bring people along if you've got a good argument.
0: Absolutely. So I've got one final question, which you sort of just alluded to then, which is what? how would you describe Australia? What is it that makes Australia, Australia?
1: Uh, I think we are egalitarian. Um, I, I genuinely believe that we have a, a really egalitarian spirit. Uh, and I think we have a can-do attitude, um, I I hope I'm not just uh projecting my own my own biases on my picture of the country, but um, you know, I think those are feel to me to be kind of fundamentally part of the Australian spirit. Um and, you know, I, I know you guys think a lot about um migration and, and cohesion and I think actually that being a very multicultural society has contributed to that. Um people self select into to being <laughs> migrants and they they come with those um, attitudes, which I think has contributed to you know what is a sort of a great willingness um, to take on new challenges as a nation.
0: Thank you so much, Danielle. What a great point to leave on and uh, absolutely delighted that you've been a part of this final episode of our Voices of Australia podcast series. So thrilled to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a great conversation. Well, Faisal, what a way to finish! That, Wasn't Danielle fantastic?
1: I
2: think she's a great final uh, guest to kind of bring all these different topics that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. Yeah. So yeah, she was uh, she was incredible.
0: And we'd had in previously all these examples of really very specific areas, and yet mm-hmm. she could talk at that very macro level of how economics and and growth and population all play out together.
2: I don't envy her task, like <laughs> to be asked to talk about, you know, oh, what is Australia's future, you know, and then having to grapple with so many different places. I think she, if I really put it down to a few things, you know, which kind of comes back to those other episodes, you know, as this, this is the final one in our series, uh, this particular yeah. series, that leadership element, like the ability to be bold. I think I really liked how she said that, you know, yeah. to, you know, take a risk, but...
0: And Not, stop, re, stop rewriting your strategy every yeah. time, but just get down and do it.
2: Just go and do it. Um, I think that's something that um, I've always been inspired by, by hearing how other people approach particularly really complex policy challenges. But mm-hmm. the thing that stood out to me, I don't know what you think, yeah. Anthea, here, but is that don't underestimate people people will uh, absolutely. people will join you and they'll come on the journey with you if you're prepared to communicate effectively.
0: Oh, and, and we've learned how important storytelling is yeah. to communication. Yeah. So having politicians that can actually paint a picture yeah. of where the future might be
1: yeah.
0: is, is usually just the first step in really building people's um, support for where you want to go.
2: Well, I noticed, Anthea, you asked what is Australia. (laughs) How do you explain it? How would you answer that question?
0: I'm sorry you asked me that because (laughs) I hadn't given it much thought. And I I think she's right. I certainly think that the Australian intention is to be as egalitarian as possible. I also mm. think that Australia is actually quite a progressive nation. So I, I think we're very open and flexible mm. to new ideas and new people and new ways of thinking. Mm. Um, I think we just don't necessarily remind people yeah. about how important that is as a strength yeah. for the nation. But what about you? Do you think uh, we're egalitarian?
2: I think we can be. And I think broadly our system um is set up to be egalitarian. But I do think that maybe some of the ways that we're approaching these big challenges that Danielle, Danielle was talking about today and some of our other guests have grappled with, I think if we aren't bold and we're not prepared to just say, well, we know what we need to do. You know, I do feel that, you know, we are risking some of those really intrinsic cohesive things that has made us (laughs) successful. And I, I, While I worry, I I have a really, you know, optimism that the next generation of Australians will probably say, well, why don't you just do that? (laughs) You know, people like my sister, who would just say, well, you know, you don't need to do it that way. Just, you know, get on with it. Yeah. I
0: I think you're absolutely right. I think we, we do need to to get on and do more and be bold and, and really step up and where we, wherever we can. But, not without thinking about how to ensure that everybody is a part of that journey and not leaving people behind. I think that's really important.
2: Yeah. And and also making people feel like they can buy into this idea. Like some of these challenges you were mentioning in that episode about AI and education, et cetera, you know, if people feel like they're so removed from those challenges, then they might not necessarily see themselves as part of the future or the solution, and that might sound obvious, <laughs> but it's true. If, it is. If it people is don't feel true. they're connected to their broader society or its future, yeah. then they will detach.
0: It's that "what's in it for me" yeah type thing, and we, yeah. and not necessarily in a selfish way. Yeah, just why should I care? Yeah, about these sorts of things. So. Yeah,
2: it was interesting in one of these one of the early episodes with neighbor on neighborhood and belonging, where we talked to Bronwyn and Mo. Yeah you know one of that idea of the nature of you know the australian identity you know people not necessarily identifying with that but maybe their local neighborhoods yeah you know this episode i guess we've talked about the macro australia i do wonder you know in the future whether that dynamic starts to change whether do you think in the future yeah. people start to identify more with australia or will we continue down the path of identifying with our neighbourhood what do you think
0: it, 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 well I think it's such a good question and I do hope that through the series <clears throat> people have have um, or, or our listeners yeah. have had the opportunity to see how a number of these different elements play out in thinking about the broader Australia but mm. it, it is so complex and so nuanced It's really important to um, sort of highlight mental health and uh, integrity and, and, and discrimination, all of those different elements, and then think about what does that mean for Australia as as a whole, so yeah. um, I I want to thank you yeah. for all that you've done in preparing us for this series, mm. and also for um, the enormous background work that you've done in uh, ensuring that our guests know what we're trying to get to, <laughs> and ensuring that I know where we're going with the with the series. It's been incredibly important. You've been a wonderful producer for oh, this series, and you. I hope you're as proud of it as I am. <laughs> And uh, and I hope all of our listeners really enjoy it.
2: Well, I I well thank you, but I think I join you the last part. I <laughs> hope I hope people just enjoy at least grappling with some of the you know some of those big macro meaty topics that maybe people avoid, and feel like at least we've started a conversation. I would really like to hear what listeners think about some of these things so I hope people get in contact I hope people write to us I also wanted to make some shout outs particularly to uh, John Bigelow who's uh, you can't see him on the screen (laughs) at the moment or you can't hear him on the mic but uh, he's been incredibly uh, useful and and just such a help to us to get this podcast where it is Um, thank you John (laughs) um, I know in every at the end of each episode we have a, a little outro but I wanted to also, thank Matthew Skidmore, who's uh, really helped us with a bit of this research mm-hmm. background uh, for each episode. And lastly, uh, although I think you know he might he'll still be in Greece when this episode comes <laughs> out, uh, is Agalos, uh, who yeah did an incredible job with us in terms of just conceptualizing this series. And, uh, you know, even gave us so many ideas for future series. So uh, we'll see how that works. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: and the other individuals that played a part in helping us develop the brand and the music that we use. Yeah. um, It's been uh, just a a really team effort.
2: Uh, Yeah. Particularly with Meg. She's done a wonderful job in helping us, uh, you know, at least give a bit of a design for our podcast. (laughs) And uh, and the last one... um, I think is uh, Steve, who's actually made the music. So everything you've been hearing over the last uh, 10 episodes, uh, Steve's done us a wonderful job in making us some music. So, yeah, it's been a team effort, but uh, thank you, Anthea. It's been a great No, an absolute
0: privilege to work with you too, Faisal. So thank you very, very much. And and thank you to our listeners. um, Yes, we look forward to getting as much feedback from you as you wish to pass on.
2: Yeah, get in touch, write to (laughs) us. We want to hear what you think any ideas for future series and episodes and yeah, we'll yeah. see what we can do.
0: Great. Right. Thank you.
2: Thanks for tuning in to the Voices of Australia podcast brought to you by the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. This podcast is produced by me, Face Farah and with audio, visual recording and editing by John Bigelow from Interactive Media Solutions. Research for each episode is provided by Agalos macdu and Matthew Skidmore. Original music is is by Steve Klapsinos. Learn more about the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute and all its works by visiting the website